Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest today has been a firefighter for 23 odd years, a trade union activist, and he's now a proponent of what's known as the Blue Labour Movement. Uh, Paul Embry has just written his very first book, which is called Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. Thanks very much for coming on today, uh, Paul. Good to be with you. Yeah, uh, I read your book and it, you know, hugely resonated with me and I think it will with many people. Uh, but I wanted to start with something you say towards the end, uh, which I think is, was quite profound actually. You say the British working class has found its voice and that's towards the end, but it's not the Labour voice, is it? No, it certainly um, isn't being voiced through uh, Labour Party channels. Yeah. Um, the British working class has found its voice in the sense of the Brexit vote, which mm. uh, I think was broadly a working class vote, if not exclusively, of course. Um, and then again in the 2019 general election, where um, working class people who traditionally would have once upon a time been regarded as Labour and felt comfortable voting Labour, um, decided in great numbers to, to throw their lot in with the, the Tory party and we saw obviously the collapse of the Red Wall, we saw a number of seats which had been Labour since time immemorial um, fall into the hands of the, the Tories. Um, and it just strikes me that, that what we're witnessing is a large group of people who uh, millions of people, millions of ordinary working class voters who have largely been neglected and ignored and sneered at and mocked over recent years uh, have suddenly decided to, to fight back and, uh, and they've done that in the most strident way with those, those two particular votes. But didn't you, you sort of predicted this would happen, I mean the Red War thing in particular didn't you, I think? I've been arguing for a long time that the disconnect between the Labour Party and what you might call traditional working class voters was becoming more and more profound. Um, I always felt that at some point that was going to manifest itself in a series of, of losses at the general election in terms of traditional working class Labour seats, those old working class heartlands. Um, I'm active in the Labour movement, I've been a member of the Labour Party for 26 years, I've been a trade unionist for longer than that, um, you know, I, I go along to trade union meetings, uh, I'm active um, to a certain degree within the Labour Party, I attend Labour Party conferences each year, and I was making this case to people, um, but it was falling on deaf ears, mm -hmm. and particularly over the, the last couple of years where um, many people within the Labour Party felt that, you know, because we were now the biggest party in Europe, we were a mass membership party, that somehow reflected the view of the country. Um, and, you know, they, they really didn't understand when someone like me came along and said, actually, despite that, we are losing, we are hemorrhaging votes in working class communities because our values, our language, our priorities is just not meeting um, the language and values of priorities and priorities of those those ordinary working class votes and in many respects I think one of the worst things that happened for the Labour Party was doing better than people anticipated in the 2017 yeah. general election because in, in many senses I think that masked the, the the real underlying problem and there were and I used to debate with people inside the Labour Party that you know, they were almost jubilant at the fact that, you know, Labour denied 
Theresa May, a, a majority, did much better than expected. And I tried to impress upon people, look, you know, at the time we're seven years into a Tory government, or the first part of that was obviously a coalition government, um, during which they have been imposing austerity, which has had a pretty serious effect in working class communities. Um, and how is it that we still cannot win a general election? And this is no cause for celebration, the fact that we've lost again. Um, and then after that, um, particularly I think when the Labour Party changed its position in terms of the second referendum, I think that really sounded the, the death knell. Um, and as you said, I predicted it just four days before the, um, the general election in December. I said that I felt that the red wall was going to, to crumble. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Um, and they didn't listen to, to me and a few other siren voices in the Labour Party at the time who were sounding these warnings. Mm. They're not particularly listening now, to be perfectly honest, not most of them. Yeah. Um, so it's still, it's still an up uphill struggle on the left. Do you think this is permanent, this crumbling of the red, red wall? Well, I think there's a real danger for the Labour Party that people inside the party think it cannot get any worse. Um, and the truth is, it potentially can. I mean, if you look at some of those red wall seats that the Labour Party held on to, some of those majorities are, are pretty thin. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily take much for t the Tories to, to win those seats as well next time out. Um, I think there's almost a psychological thing as well for some working class voters who voted Tory for the first time in December. It was a big step for many of them. Um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a stigma attached to voting Tory in those areas, and many of them did it for the first time. And, you know, we heard the, the stories of people feeling their ancestors whispering in their ear as they went into the ballot box and, and voted Tory. And I sense that, you know, having, having done it once, that taboo, if you like, has been broken mm. um, and they wouldn't hesitate to do it again if they felt it was justified. So I think the next few years are going to be really important. Um, I think if Boris Johnson and the Tories are seen to deliver in those working class communities in terms of investing in those communities, in terms of regeneration, in terms of reindustrialization, um, and people feel that tangibly their lives have been made better by the Tories, then the chances are those people are not going to vote Labour again, and also that some of those seats that we did hold on to would fall. So there's a, there's a real mountain to climb for the Labour Party, and it's only going to win those seats back. Um, if at all, if it can reconnect, if it starts speaking the language of those people, getting away from the, the fringe issues that obsess so much of the left nowadays mm. and start concentrating on those core issues, what I call the solar plexus issues, the issues that punch people in the stomach, the, issue that, the issues that people want to talk to you about on the doorstep. Um, and the issues which, frankly, when they're, they're raised, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, things like law and order, I'm talking about things like immigration, I'm talking about things like national security, patriotism, traditional values, the family, all of this sort of stuff that causes many activists in the Labour Party just to look down at their shoes and shuffle them in embarrassment because they want to get off those topics and they want to be talking about LGBT rights and climate change and human rights and, and things like that which of course have their place um, in, the, in the national debate, I wouldn't suggest otherwise, but are not ultimately the priorities for people in those places, those Red Bull seats that, that voted Tory. So can Labour pull it back? It's not impossible, but it's going to be very, very difficult and much will hang on what the Tories do in the next five years and whether Labour can go through the kind of radical shift that it, that it needs. I suppose really that a lot depends on whether, as you say, Boris and the Tories neglect them having won them you know and whether in fact it just looks 
opportunistic. Remember Boris was saying, um, you know, uh, thank you for lending us your vote. Mm. And it was all very well judged and all of this. But mm. the time seems to have changed already on that front. Delivery is going to be important. Mm. And, you know, what has really thrown a spanner in the works for the Tories is the, is the mm. coronavirus. Um, because, you know, the, the, the thing that's going on in Manchester, for example, mm. Um, and the government's approach to, to Manchester and the discussions with Andy Burnham. Um, and, you know, there are other people in some of those working class communities that do stand to lose their jobs. You know, businesses will fail, industries will fail, um, people will suffer financially. Working class people in those communities often don't have the same opportunities to work from home that people in more affluent middle class communities might. Um, now, I think that in, in response to, to the financial impacts of coronavirus, if the Tories think that, the, that they can get away with imposing several more years of austerity in the way that, that they've done over the last decade, then I think they're going to be seriously mistaken because I think people have had a bellyful of that, particularly in those communities. Um, so people, as I said, people need to feel that their lives are tangibly better, people need to feel financially better off, financially more secure, culturally a bit more secure. Um, and if the Tories think they can, you know, take some sort of ne neoliberal slash and burn approach um, in response to coronavirus, and that those votes in those red wall seats will still come flooding to them, I think they're going to be mistaken. Yes. You mentioned the cultural issue. You said cultural security. This is interesting. It's quite a buzzword, isn't it? Cultural security. Um, there is this sort of idea that's emerged over the past few years that the way forward for any party now is to be culturally cons quite conservative or, or should we say you know security minded and economically on the left um, is that what you would call blue labor is that what that is i mean because it seems to me that that's also what the social democrats party are also about, isn't it? Is that yeah, I think that's probably a fair assessment. There's certainly a heavy crossover between mm. the philosophy of, of Blue Labour and the, the kind of new incarnation, if you like, of the of the SDP. Um, someone once described Blue Labour as socialism with a small c, which I think is quite a, quite a good way of describing it. And it's certainly true that there is what some people have described as that sweet spot in British politics where you know, I think millions of people, voters, including voters in those Red Wall constituencies that we've talked about, fall into this category where uh, they are left on the economy, mm. so they don't like uh, an unfettered, untrammeled free market, which just, you know, leaves people to... Um, to their own devices and says, get on with it. They like an interventionist state. Um, they like the idea of redistribution of wealth. They like the idea of, you know, tackling regional inequalities and boardroom excesses uh, and that kind of thing. Um, they don't like a galloping gap between rich and poor. Um, but on the on the cultural aspects of it, yes, they probably are a bit to the right. So many of them, not all of them, but many of them could be described as socially conservative on some of those issues around law and order and immigration and welfare and family, etc., and national security. Um, but and this is the key point, I think. Once upon a time, people who fell into that category were 
perfectly comfortable about voting for the Labour Party. Mm. And uh, the Labour Party, frankly, was comfortable about having those people within its rank ranks, and very much the backbone of the, the party in years gone by. But increasingly the party looks at those people as if they're some kind of embarrassing elderly relative. You know, we want their votes at election time, but we don't really want to be seen in public with them. Uh, and you can look, I mean, probably the most glaring example of that was the Gillian Duffy scenario. Where you say in your book, this is sort of emblematic of the whole problem. It was, it? it was very symbolic. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at Gillian Duffy, she was a traditional Labour voter. Um, she lived in a working class constituency like Rochdale, had always voted Labour, but just happened on the election stump to express, not in any way in intemperate terms, her concern over the number of people coming into the community and the impact that that was having. Uh, and of course, as we know, Gordon Brown privately, or he thought privately, dismissed her as, as some, um, some bigoted old woman. And the truth was, I think, that what Gordon Brown was doing is actually revealing the kind of thought that many people in the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement do nowadays have about people like Gillian Duffy. They do genuinely believe that people like her are bigoted. Um, they will privately mock them and sneer at them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other example was Emily Thornberry, of course, mm -hmm. where she went to Rochester in the, the by-election and uh, in 2014, I think it was, mm -hmm. and saw the St George's flag outside the, the house in a white van. Um, and obviously thought that, that this was so so noteworthy that it was worth tweeting about in a disparaging way. Um, and actually the person in that house may well have been, for all she knew, someone who was sympathetic to the Labour Party, mm -hmm. to Labour values, but obviously in her view, you know, deserved to be to be uh, to be mocked. Uh, and you know, I, I do try and I do try and say to people in the Labour movement that these people are we should see them as our people now. I've never flown a St George's flag outside my house, but I understand why people might want to do that because they might, you know, in a kind of benign way, want to display their patriotism. Um, and these are often ordinary working class people who, who we should look to, to bring into the Labour Party. So, so those were, were two examples, really, that I think threw into sharp relief the, 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 the chasm that in many respects has emerged between working class people who once upon a time were welcome in the party but who much of the party now see as almost like museum pieces. Yes, I mean, you, you mentioned there the St George's flag, you know, and Emily Formby, that famous tweet. Um, but in your book also you talk about England. You talk, I think, the depossession of England, I think you call, call the chapter. But, you know, th these things are not generally talked about, not even just by the Labour Party, but, I mean, England as, as an entity is very rarely discussed, but you actually do go into it, don't you, in the book? Yeah, and I think there, there, there is, uh, without question, uh, a more acute feeling of, of national uh, dispossession um, within England than anywhere else. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, um, many people on the left uh, see that kind of uh, nationalism as more permissible. Um, you know, we can live with that sort of nationalism because we, you know, accept that it's progressive in a way. Uh, but any kind of display of English nationalism plainly harks back to empire and can only come from some sort of innate racism so we've got to try to clamp down on that and I think people in these English particularly working class communities uh, who do feel a sense of patriotism um, often feel that they're, they're not entitled to express that in any sort of explicit, explicit English way and I think that's why 
certainly in terms of the Brexit vote, for example, um, the Brexit vote was was higher in the English working class communities than it was in uh, working class communities in other countries. And in fact, I refer in the book to the writer Anthony Barnett, who drew a comparison between Wigan in England and Paisley, I think it was in Scotland, where he talks that in, in many ways these two towns were quite similar in terms of population, in terms of industry that was once there and, and which it lost. But when you look at the, the Brexit vote, it was sharply different with Wigan obviously being strongly for leave and um, Paisley being strongly for remain and I think that that does help us to understand you know why the the English working class particularly do feel that sense of alienation because it's almost as if the their own culture is discouraged and um, Professor Eric Kaufman who wrote a book called White Shift mm. uh, you know describes to a certain degree this phenomenon quite well when he, he talks about something called asymmetrical multiculturalism, um, where he says that in some of those traditional working class communities, people are lectured about the need to kind of open themselves up to other cultures and to um, you know, be amenable to other cultures and to see the benefits of other cultures and this kind of liberal cosmopolitan vibe. Um, but when it comes to their own culture, um, the liberal establishment takes a completely opposite view and says, well, actually, that kind of old Anglo-Saxon working-class culture, where you don't really want you to, to display that. You need to be open to everybody else, but you can't really display any sense of pride in your, old, in your own culture. And yeah, people are not stupid. They see, mm. they see the, um, the, the disproportionate um, focus on other cultures and the, the sneering at their own, and they think, actually, this is, this is not fair. And often the only way that people have got to manifest their anger and resentment at that is through the, the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Brexit was, was um, so instructive, because in a way where, with a general election, you know, people will often usually vote for one of the two parties uh, and often there's not much difference between the two main parties and people decide not to vote for those reasons or if they do they still don't really think they can affect change in a serious yeah, way through, yeah. through a general election. Well, when Brexit came along um, and it was a straight binary yes or no and millions of people who yes were, were anti-EU but often not in a vociferous way which is why I argue that the Brexit vote was as much a, a vote against the UK establishment as it mm. was against the EU. Mm. And people just felt, well, hold on a second, we've been given this weapon and for the first time in our lives we've got the opportunity mm. to really fire back at the establishment and to rock the establishment in a way that they hadn't had that opportunity previously and um, may have been their only opportunity for their lifetimes. And many of them voted for the first time and thought, right, you're going to get it. This is my only opportunity to tell you what I think. You know, you've been um, treating me with disdain for the last 20 or 30 years. You've been ignoring my legitimate concerns and anxieties um, and take that and deal with it. And uh, it was a genuine democratic revolt in that way. Mm. The left should have embraced it, but it didn't. It tried to subvert it, it rejected it, it tried to dismiss it as racism, and it paid a huge price for that. Well, they dismissed it, but also, don't you think, Paul, that since then they are bitter and revengeful for having been basically tossed aside, you know, the establishment, as it were. Mm. You know, they have done, they cannot forgive well, what the, happened. The, these, were, these were people, I mean, if you look at the, the liberal establishment in this country, these were people who, frankly, had had it their own way for mm. so long and were so used to dictating the political agenda that all of a sudden 
something happened where they lost and they lost badly and they they couldn't get their heads around it it didn't compute uh, and that's why we saw all the nonsense. They, they couldn't understand that ordinary working class people had gone out and done something which they thought was terrible. Despite being advised that they shouldn't do it, they said, well, stuff you, we, we're going to do it anyway. We don't like the way that you've been running the country. We don't like the, uh, the way that you make us feel. We don't like the sneering and the mockery, and we're now going to give it back to you. And the, the liberal establishment, which cut across all parties to a certain degree, but it was certainly part of the, the left's philosophy at the time, tried to explain this by, well, it was the interference of Russia, or, you know, you were persuaded by something you read on the side of a bus, or, you know, Cambridge Analytica was misleading you on social media, or Aaron Banks managed to fool you all. I mean, this, this stuff was just complete nonsense. If these people, and I had this debate face to face with many of them, if they genuinely thought that what happened on June the 23rd 2016 just came out of a clear blue sky or was the result of something they people saw on the side of a bus or, or, or you know Russia then frankly they didn't understand their own country and they didn't understand what had been happening inside the country for the last 20 or 30 years where this resentment and this sense of alienation was brewing and building and at some point was going to manifest itself in, in you know something like Brexit um, and so because of that because they convinced themselves that the working class uh, really didn't know what they were voting for or the working class um, was somehow duped, um, they just decided that we're not going to implement the vote, you know, or we're going to do everything we can to, to get it overturned. Uh, and I have to say that, that the left, that the labour movement, or large parts of it at least, were complicit with this. Um, was, I still believe, absolutely disgraceful. That here you had a big democratic exercise, one of the biggest democratic exercises in our history. We had the debate and millions of people, 33 million people or whatever it was in total, went to the polls and a majority of those people uh, said, you know, after the debate, this is what we want. We want to leave the European Union. It was a straightforward answer um, and that the, 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 the left, who has got a duty, in my view, to be the voice of the working class and to listen to the demands of the working class, um, tried to subvert that and tried all sorts of disingenuous ways to force people to, to vote again and to make sure that that vote wasn't implemented um, was disgraceful and I think people who were part of that really ought to look themselves in the mirror and there's no question in my mind that that was a big part of why the left now is flirting with irrelevance, why it is now um, hated, and I don't use that word loosely, hated in some of those working class mm -hmm. communities that voted Tory for the first time. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I speak to people in those communities quite often. Um, before now, you know, if people were anti-Labour, they still had a sort of residual sympathy for the, for the Labour Party, but the vitriol that people felt towards the Labour Party over the last couple of years was, was quite staggering, mm -hmm. actually, and that's why I think you know, there needs to be a, a, a mere culpa on the part of the left. Um, and we've seen Keir Starmer make some moves in that direction, but there's a huge way to go. Were you, were you surprised by the... You talked about them, uh, you know, thinking the working class people had been duped. The implication being is that they're stupid, right? Um, and it wasn't just Labour saying this. I, it was a liberal establishment. But were you surprised by the level of snobbery? that emerged during that time. I, I, I was. I thought, I just, it was a part of the country, I just thought, I don't quite recognise this, but it was sort of absolute blatant snobbery now, you know, in relation to Brexit. 
Yeah, I think I think that was very much a part of it, and I think the the, the left was very much part of that snobbery as well. And I think to a certain degree that can be explained by, you know, the, the shift in the demographic on the left over recent years. I mean, and, and I talk about this in the the book. I mean, certainly when if you used to look at Labour Party conferences, for example, on the TV, you would have an array of accents from the rostrum. Uh, you would have delegates from constituency Labour parties and trade unionists who were genuinely and proudly working class, had come from those working class communities, often had blue collar jobs, come up through the trade union movement. Um, and even to a certain degree MPs, I mean you would have uh, MPs, the, the, the Labour benches would be made up of many people who could say, yeah, we've, we've done a proper job, you know, we've... We Eric Heffer, you know, think of people like, I'm thinking back to the 70s, 60s and 70s uh, Of course, now. big beasts in yeah. some cases, yeah, you know, yeah. people who had worked down mines or in shipyards mm. or in docks and mm. factories and things like that. Now, obviously, to a certain degree, that can be explained by deindustrialization. the fact that some of that heavy industry mm. simply doesn't exist anymore. But, of course, we do, we still, do still have things like call centres. Uh, we do still have things like, you know, warehouses where people are working on low, at, uh, low wages and zero hours contracts and in precarious employment. Um, so, so that kind of uh, that kind of low wage industry occupations do do still exist. But these people are just not coming through into the Labour Party, and, and because of the shift in the demographic demographic in the Labour Party, where it has become much more of a kind of bourgeois. Um, metropolitan, liberal, studenty type party, um, then that I think explains some of the snobbery. You know, in many many respects, a graduate party as well, a party mm, of the, mm. the cities, particularly the university cities, um, and they look down at the working class in a way that previous generations of Labour activists and MPs simply wouldn't have done. Do you think that Keir Starmer gets this? I mean. You know, he talked recently about fat Labour shouldn't be, say, shy on patriotism. Uh, um, he made various sort of sympathetic noises about the last night of the proms, you know, all of those sort of issues. Do, do you think that's, do you think he really understands it? Is his heart in it? Do you, do, do you think that there, there is a sort of change that's not just simply cosmetic? I don't think it's instinctive with Sakir. Uh, I think it's what you might call real politic. I think he's mm. got people, uh, close advisors, some of them are pretty good, I think, um, who are telling him the right things and are saying, look, unless you start talking about some of this stuff, then we're finished. Mm. Um, I don't think it's in his gut. I think it's more in his head. I think it's a calculated decision to realise that this needs to happen in order to reconnect with working class communities. Um, I mean, the truth is Keir Starmer is very much part of that demographic that, has, uh, that, that so many people in those traditional working class constituencies see as alien. Um, you know, he is a North London lawyer. I think instinctively he's a, he's a Blairite, you know, he's, he's middle class. Um, I don't think he instinctively understands those communities, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that at the very least, and I know it's a bare minimum, but at the very least he is starting to, to speak the language of patriotism, the language of national security, the language of family, um, and not obsessing about some of those fringe issues which the Labour Party has, has, has you know, dominated thinking and discourse in the Labour Party for so long. Um, what I would say, however, is people are not stupid and they're not going to be duped just because someone decides for electoral reasons that they're going to start 
you know, t talking about issues mm. that people n feel are relevant to their lives. People need to see a culture change inside the Labour Party. They need to see a radical shift in ideology. They need to see the change not just in uh, in, in messaging, they need to see the change in policy as well, um, and they need to see a change in the demographic of the party. They need to see MPs who look and sound like them, who speak their language, who come from their constituencies, who know their communities, who understand their desire for a sense of place and a sense of belonging, um, the kind of stuff that you know the middle class people within the Labour Party now really don't understand because they've been to university or you know they've had good jobs or before they've come into come into Parliament, they've been well paid, they're part of the professional class or they've been research assistants for MPs and they haven't worked in those jobs and those industries and lived in those communities often um, that, that, these, that these people are living in and those occupations that people are working in. So unless people out there, the millions of working class voters who have abandoned the Labour Party, see a real deep-rooted shift um, which goes beyond language, uh, then, then no, I don't think they're going to come flocking back. So there, there's a huge job for Sakir Starmer to do. There's, there's, there are two things here which I, it's fascinating, you, which you cover, one of them in the book, uh, is about the need for to build up our manufacturing industry again and, and why this shouldn't even have been uh, well, on such a scale in terms of destruction. Um, that it wasn't necessary. I think a lot of people on the right would agree with you there. Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to, there's that, but then also we're recording this on Friday. Just yesterday, um, Jeremy Corbyn was suspended by the Labour Party because of the anti-Semitic report and, and, and all of that. Doesn't that give people like you a sort of you know, a kind of an opportunity is, you know, to, to, a clean brush is supposedly going to be going through the party. Uh, it might even spit, who knows? I mean, what, what do you think is the future in that way? I mean, well, I hope the Labour Party doesn't split. Um, I've been in the Labour Party for, for 26 years. Mm. Um, I love the Labour movement. You know, I'm, mm. I'm part of the Labour movement. I love the history of the Labour movement. I love the traditions of the Labour movement. Um, you know, if you look at things like the Durham Miners Gala, for example, um, which has been going for, I think, over a, a century, where um, people come together and you see the banners and, you know, there's the service at Durham Cathedral and then you have the speeches um, afterwards. Um, and all of that, that history of the Labour movement, which is about people working together, which is about solidarity, which is about realising that we're part of something greater than ourselves, which is about understanding that, you know, society isn't fair and if we're going to challenge the unfairnesses and the inequities within society in terms of income and wealth and opportunity, then we have to organise through our own institutions, be they trade unions or whatever on the left, in order to, 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 to advance our cause and in order to, to win concessions for ourselves. So, you know, that's, that's a history of the Labour movement that, that I adore in many ways. And, you know, I get angry when I look at how people on the modern left today um, have very little affinity with that history of the, of the Labour movement and are obsessed with the fringe issues or obsessed with ID politics or obsessed with turning people against each other, uh, have very little affinity for the idea of class and the, the, the need for people on a class basis to organise themselves together, are more interested in fragmenting people on the basis of their distinctive biological traits um, and, uh, you know, and, and particularly I think uh, are, have, have, have 
kind of set a whole atmosphere on the left and wider society where unless you sign up to the precepts of their kind of liberal progressive cosmopolitanism then you have no place on the left you should be silenced there's this council culture that they're responsible for so I resent most people and what they've done to the to the movement and they haven't even been anywhere near successful they've helped to destroy the labor movement and set us back years um, and frankly I wish they'd show some humility instead of telling people like me um, that I don't understand the modern working class and I've got a nostalgic view of the working class, they should look at what they have created and, and perhaps be a little bit more humble about the whole thing. It's astonishing, actually, that they should call you nostalgic or romanticising. I mean, that's extraordinary that they should do that about supposedly people that they're meant to uh, actually represent. I mean, the, 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 the Labour that you are um, describing that you like and that you feel very fond of, that is the Labour Party my parents voted for you know, back in the well, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right through to Thatcher, actually. Um, and they felt then that it was sort of changing. But all of these questions like patriotism, uh, cultural, being culturally secure, they were never on the cards then. They, you could take for granted. I mean, you know, my, my parents, they were working class people, uh, very patriotic, like the Queen and everything, but they did certainly had a very strong sense of um, economic, um, shall we say, unfairness. Very, you know, they had a very strong sense, you know, aspirational. But they certainly weren't kind of crazy for the market as such. Mm -hmm. you know? and, so they are, they are your people that you're talking about, really. And and they are still there now in abundance. Mm. And many of them actually voted Tory because mm. they they felt that the Tories were were offering them economic security and were also offering them cultural security. I mean. The, the, the point that I make in the book is that the Labour Party historically was always an electoral compromise between its traditional working class base and a layer of more middle class liberal people who felt that it was right to have a fairer economy and tackle the inequalities in society and were, were willing to sort of pay more tax in order to, to achieve that. And I kind of describe it as... as you know, mainly Hartlepool, but with uh, a good dash of Hampstead mm. thrown in. And I think Labour was at its most successful when it was able to hold that coalition together. I think the problem in recent years is it has, that that coalition has become so unbalanced. So the party has become almost all Hampstead, but with very little Hartlepool. Um, and you know, I, I think that any political party, if you're going to be successful, you have to start from your base and build outwards. Um, and that's when Labour has been at its most successful. I think what the Labour Party over recent years, and I think this phenomenon predates Corbyn, a point I make in the book is anyone who thinks that uh, the disconnect between Labour and the working class began and ended with Corbyn is seriously mistaken. What happened is that, that Labour... Um, tried to, you know, it, it kind of embraced the social and economic liberalism, a, a poisonous brew of social and economic liberalism, and, and hoped that throughout that period, um, the, and I sort of traced this to, to the late 80s and then through Blair, and I think it intensified throughout the last 15 years, um, and, and hoped that the working class just stayed with it, and for a part of it, the working class did, um, but then when the working class started to see huge rapid demographic change in their societies and expressed unease and were told that they were racist and when they started to 
you know, see the impacts of, of austerity and, and low wages and poor housing, etc. Um, that's when the working class base started to, to desert Labour. Um, and actually, Labour hasn't won the popular vote in England since 2001. Mm. Um, you know, it's completely lost in England. And when you when you combine that with the, the, the wipeout in Scotland as well, you can see that that was only heading in, in one way. So for Labour to... So, so that balance that I talked about, that historical electoral balance between Hampstead and Hartlepool, that pendulum needs to, to shift seriously back in the other direction. Um, and it's not... It's not a forlorn task. I think it's possible to do it, but it's going to mean an, an absolute culture change inside the Labour Party. You uh, talk very vividly about growing up in Dagenham um, and the kind of society and working class community it was. And you also say that basically it was at the very beginning of this century, so essentially 2001, 2010, there were huge changes that happened. I think that there's one statistic you mentioned, which is that foreign-born people in Dagenham went up by 205% mm. or something like that. Mm. Um, but anyway, lots of changes happening. Um, and I, I'm right in saying that you sort of, that's when you really realised something was, was very much up with Labour Party and its support, wasn't that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the change, Barking and Dagenham was, was profound and, and actually had a, a huge influence in in my thinking because some of those changes that began around the, the turn of the century uh, and particularly the, the speed of the change as much as anything else just left people bewildered and disorientated and that bewilderment and disorientation was dismissed as racism and bigotry and you know I'd, I'd grown up in the area I was living in the area at the time and I have to say you know as someone on the left at the beginning I was quite relaxed about it I bought into the whole idea of you know liberal cosmopolitanism and you know this is vibrant and, and we should embrace it and I'm pro-immigration you know I believe immigration has, has been a good for our country um, I believe that we should embrace it but like all good things I believe it needs to be managed and I think you can have too much sometimes of a good thing and, and the complete lack of management of the, of the system um, I think has, has really disorientated some of those working class communities like Barking and Dagenham and, and you know as these changes in Barking and Dagenham started to happen I began to realise that simply lecturing people about the benefits of cosmopolitanism mm. uh, and multiculturalism uh, was not good enough because when people felt that their sense of order had been violated, mm -hmm. it wasn't their, as I say in the book, it wasn't that their sense of race had been violated, it was simply that their sense of order had been violated. Things that they'd known were changing very rapidly around them, whole streets were changing, different languages were being spoken, shops were now selling things that they, that they didn't need. Um, and that sense of familiarity and belonging, which is actually really important in working class places, because you know you find that where people have less money uh, and their horizons are not as extensive and they have less opportunity, then the whole concept of family and place and community and belonging um, becomes more important, I think, to them often than if you're a middle person, a graduate, and you can travel and you can work and you can take gap years and you can move when you want to. Um, and you can be more transient in that way. Um, and that's why I came to the view that actually you need to be really careful. And I'm pretty certain that the vast majority of people in Barking and Dagenham were not racist, but were just mm. really uncomfortable about the pace of change, about an area that many of them had lived in all of their lives suddenly 
being subject, subjected to rapid cultural transformation. And whenever they said, look, we're uneasy about this, can you just slow it down? Um, they were told, no, actually, this is good for you. Yeah. Um, and if you know, it's good for you culturally, but also economically, you might be a tenner a month better off as well, mm. uh, which is almost like a Thatcherite argument. Mm. You say to people, it's, mm. you know, it's all about the economy, mm. when actually you know, th that, that person's sense of place and community um, was much more important to them. And I think the really sad thing about what happened in places like Barking and Dagenham, where the BNP, for example, were elected mm. and, and became the official opposition on the council in 2006. Um, and it really didn't have to be that way. If we'd had a, a proper system that, that managed numbers properly, um, had a proper system of, of dispersing migrants throughout the country so that undue pressure wasn't put just on, on already hard-pressed working-class communities, um, we could have had a much more sensible debate and we, we wouldn't have ended up in the toxic debate that it became. Um, by ignoring people, by lecturing people, the whole debate became toxified effectively and, and immigration turned into a hot potato and it really didn't need to. And I think that's a tragic thing because most people who, like myself, are, are very open to the idea of immigration and absolutely believes in defending the rights of, of migrants and, and challenging any prejudice and that type of thing um, you know people people of that view were just alienated and and the whole thing became very divisive because people in places like Barking and Dagenham were just not listened to. But therefore Paul I mean what do you think when you look at the Labour Party now that you're active in what do you think are the chances of re-establishing a more reasonable attitude, say, to immigration in, in the Labour Party now? Well, I think Brexit gives us that opportunity to a certain degree. Um, the Labour Party cannot any longer use the excuse that, well, there's nothing we can do about free movement because, you know, we're in the EU. Uh, you know, they, they don't have that luxury. Mm. So I would like to see a Labour Party that takes a sensible view and says, look, you know, we're, we're pro-immigration, we'll always defend it, we'll always challenge prejudice, we'll defend migrants. Um, but we understand that we can't have an open borders policy, we can't have a policy where we don't regulate the labour supply, where we have people coming uh, in large numbers to already hard-pressed working-class communities like Barking and Dagenham or working in sectors uh, where there's already pressure on wages and that just exerts further pressure on wages. We need to manage the thing properly, we need to regulate the thing properly and that's what we're going to do as a Labour Party. And I, I use the example in the book of, of Japan um, and Japan has a pretty strict immigration policy um, and you know doesn't have open borders or porous borders, uh, manages the thing properly, uh, takes a modest number of immigrants each year, doesn't obsess about promoting multiculturalism and you know emphasizing the, the difference and separateness of people. Says look you know you, you can come here but we're Japan we don't really want to be anything other than Japan you know we'll, we'll make you welcome. Um, and I, I think the thing is, if you argue for that sort of policy in Britain, if you say, look, numbers should be modest and manageable, yeah. um, and you know we don't obsess about multiculturalism, we should make people welcome, but you know this is Britain, and we shouldn't be ashamed to say that this is Britain, and we expect people to assimilate. Oh, you'd be dismissed as some sort of rabid bigot and mm. you know xenophobe if you were to argue. But no one would argue that Japan is anything other than a highly civilised, well-governed, mm. safe country, mm. clean country. 
um, which has a sensible policy on, on immigration and you know, welcoming people uh, and it doesn't hide its patriotism. It's quite culturally conservative in, in many ways. Actually, if you look at the Japanese economic miracle, it was by by no means what you would now call a neoliberal country in any way or you know, a right-wing country. Much of its approach for a large period after the war was very much an interventionist Keynesian approach which was responsible for, for the, the major success of the Japanese economy. Um, why can't the left embrace that sort of thing in Britain? There's no reason why it shouldn't apart from the fact that it's dominated now by people who think that that type of approach is deeply, deeply racist and objectionable. And also I think something that people really pick up um, and this isn't just Labour, actually, to be fair. This is the establishment generally, liberal establishment. What people really pick up is that the arguments for sort of mass migration, not immigration, I don't, I don't think I know anyone who's against immigration as such, but the mass migration, the arguments for it were sort of tinged with a very strong general dislike of the people here, you know, um, mm. that whether it was, as you remark in that you talk about in the book, the Andrew Nether incident mm. during the Blair mm. years, this was the man who blew the gaff without meaning to on, on Labour, sort of actually wanting to change the kind of, you know, the makeup of Britain. Um, but even right down to the present, when you look at this whole statues issue that's going on, uh, we've become quite involved in that. Uh, all the councils wanting to take things down are all Labour, um, you know, 130 of them. Um, it's that impulse, isn't it? That's going to be so hard to dislodge, isn't it? Well, Labour has got to decide whether it is going to continue listening to a very forceful and vocal minority mm. on some of these social issues. In which case, if it does, uh, then it hasn't got a cat in hell's chance of winning back the, the, the working class vote. Mm. Or whether or not it's going to try and connect with the mainstream and face people down and, and say, actually, you know, your demands on some of these things are unreasonable. Yes, we defend fairness. Yes, we absolutely stand steadfastly against racism. Um, but if you come to us with unreasonable demands, if you think it's okay just to go and tear down statues, uh, we're not going to buy into that. You know, not just because it's wrong on principle, but because electorally it's just going to be a nightmare for mm. us. And, and I think the problem with Labour, um, one thing David Cameron got right when he was in power, when he said Britain and Twitter are not the same thing. Mm. And it's absolutely true. I mean, if you go to most working class communities in Britain. Most people are not on Twitter. Some well, of them they can't because of the jobs they're doing. Yeah, and some, of them, some of them don't even know what it is. Um, but the problem is, the, 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 you know, a, a layer of Labour politicians and activists think that that is genuinely reflective of Britain, that if you can win a debate and win likes on Twitter, that actually that shows that, that you're winning Britain. Mm. And, you know, the 2019 election showed that that wasn't the case at all. Um, so Labour has got to decide whether or not it's, it's prepared to, to face people down, whether or not it wants to continue being a party of social activists and, and students and people in the, the cities and, and, you know, people who are vocal but making unreasonable demands or whether it's prepared to say, actually, we need to reconnect with the values of working class communities. And that means sometimes saying no to the virtue signalers and, and the woke who mm. expect us to fall into line every time. We're going to have to go to battle with those people sometimes and we're not going to be afraid to do it. Uh, it will you start? Have you ever stood for Labour Party as a candidate? No, I don't think they'd have me. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any chance of that. I mean, I've, I've been I've been in the Labour Party, as I said, for, for 26 years. Um, I can't really imagine any constituency 
Labour Party who, who would... Why would that be though, Paul? Well, I think because the, the demographic of the party is, is, is not conducive to somebody like me who articulates some of those more traditional mm -hmm. Labour values. Um, I mean, not that I'm fussed about that because I'm not particularly seeking to be a representative of the Labour Party in any way, but I think, you know, the, 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 the whole party from top to bottom is largely infused with those kind of liberal, mm. urban, middle-class, mm. bourgeois values. Um, and when someone like me comes along, and you know, there are people like me still in the party, but we're few and far between. Um, I just Is there anybody you particularly would point out or admire at the moment, you know, in the party that you'd say, actually, that's what we should be doing? I mean... I think there are. I think there are some people within the party who understand it. Blue Labour, for example, which is the group that I'm involved in, um, I think gets it. People within Blue Labour predicted the the Labour meltdown long before it happened. Uh, said there is going to be a break between the Labour Party and the working class because we've bought into the market too much. We've bought into radical mm. social liberalism too much. Um, we've bought into the idea of kind of globalism and th th we think these sunlit uplands of liberal cosmopolitanism and progressivism uh, are the are the way forward and you know if people in those working class communities don't quite get it yet they will eventually get it but they clearly don't get it and they're not going to get it because those values are not reflective of their own values so there are people there's people like the English Labour Network for example there's there's some Labour MPs the likes of John Craddus and Stephen Kinnock and one or two others have been articulating the need to become perhaps more communitarian and less cosmopolitan and that, that's a prerequisite pre for, for reconnecting with those uh, working class communities. Frank um, Field? Uh, Frank Field, Frank Field yeah. who is obviously you know, no, uh, no more active in the mm. party but was someone who, who did get it. Kate Hoey yeah. uh, was another one who, who got it and, and that's the, in many respects that's the, the sad thing. I mean if you look at the number of Labour MPs who voted leave, I mean it was, it was mm. tiny. Mm. If you go back to the common market referendum in 1975. Mm. Um, I mean, no was very much a mainstream position on the left. You had huge numbers of MPs, the likes of Tony Benn and Michael Foote and Peter Shaw, uh, who articulated the, the, the case for coming out of the common market. A majority of trade unions wanted to come out of the, the common market. Um, and it was seen as you know, an argument about democracy, an argument of the right of elected governments to be able to set their own economic policy, to, to determine um, the policy of their country without undue intervention from, from technocrats and corporations, um, completely in keeping with the left's idea about, you know, democracy and self-government, etc. And then, you know, for, for reasons that I detail in the book, uh, it became very much a, a fringe position. Um, and people in working class communities saw that. They, they thought, you know, the vast majority of Labour MPs are, are voting uh, Remain. This is a party that doesn't really speak for me. And, um, and, you know, that was just one manifestation of this huge schism that's occurred. If you look back to that time, around about the 1975 referendum and onwards, and the calibre of people in Labour, like Peter Shaw or Tony Benn, as you mentioned, arguing these cases against the EU, uh, extraordinary. You realise actually not just for Labour, but how generally the, the level and quality of our public discourse has declined. Mm. You know, extraordinary, uh, beautiful arguments they put, incredibly uh, erudite. Um, you 
also had a run in yourself, didn't you, um, with your own union, isn't that right, when you spoke uh, at a Brexit rally, a cross-party ra uh, rally? Uh, when was that? that? Would have been about two or three years ago, Paul. Was it that right? that was well. Actually, it was about eighteen months ago. It was on the it was on the twenty ninth of March, twenty nineteen. And this is one with Claire Fox and uh, yeah, and, Kate Hoey and, and, yeah. and others. So it was it was a cross party rally organised mm. by Leave Means Leave, and it was held on the day that we were originally due to leave the European Union, but Theresa May's government had sought and, and got an extension. So there was quite a bit of anger about that, and so the the, the rally really became a pro-democracy rally. Mm. Uh, it was attended by thousands of people mm. in Parliament Square, many working class people, um, and there were speakers from the left and speakers from the right. And I spoke at that rally, not on behalf of my union. Um, there was no mention of my union when I was introduced, right. no mention of the this union. This is the Fire Brigade's union. The Fire Brigade's union. I sat on the national executive yeah. at the time. And the union itself had been pro-Remain um, back in 2016. But, you know, lost the vote frankly and we should have got on with implementing the, the result um, and the rally took place on a Friday evening in my own time I spoke on behalf of a group called trade unionists against the EU um, which is a group whose main backer is the RMT union actually and I'm I'm their national organizer trade unionists against the EU and we, we'd always had a rich tradition in my trade union uh, as there is across the labor movement of allowing open discussion and debate and even sometimes if you are going against the official union line if you're doing it in a personal capacity mm. or on behalf of other organizations you represent and you're not trying to imply you're speaking for your union then, then that was always perfectly permissible um, but I made I made a specific criticism within the speech which is available on YouTube where I said that the leaders of the labor movement were in danger of making the movement irrelevant if they are seen to be taking the side of the establishment over the people mm -hmm. in trying to subvert mm -hmm. the Brexit vote. Um, people can disagree with me, that's fine, I've no issue with that, but it was a legitimate argument mm -hmm. to make, I think. But the, the union leadership decided that that was somehow it amounted to an attack on the whole Fire Brigade's union itself, um, that I had um, undermined the union and caused prejudice to the union. And they decide, decided in a complete break with tradition and custom in our union um, to, um, to kick me out of office. Uh, and, you know, that was disappointing and it was wrong. I think most people now see that as wrong, but they took the decision and they've got to, to defend it. So that's ongoing, is it? The, the it's ongoing. There's a there's a tribunal which is due to take place in February where I'll have my day in court. I don't know if I'll win, I don't know if I'll lose, but I'll make the arguments that I want to make and they'll be forced to, to defend their position. And, um, and yeah, that'll be interesting. But you, uh, obviously you're still a firefighter, but you're increasingly writing, commentating. You write, you write for Unheard, don't you? For yeah, I'm a, I'm a regular columnist for Unheard, yeah. which is, uh, which is a, a website which gives a platform. I mean, it's a play on words, obviously, Unheard um, and uh, U-N-H-E-R-D. So it's about not going with the herd, but also giving a platform mm. to people mm. who, who previously uh, were it's unheard and yeah. to, you know, to, to less prominent voices, yeah. if you like. Um, 
and covers a range of, of issues, doesn't fall into one particular category, there's people on the left and people on the right who, who write for it, so so that's good, but yeah, as you say, my main, my main role is as a firefighter, I've been doing that for 23 years, that's my primary occupation, that comes above everything else, but I try to, I try to fit in the writing and a, a bit of media work around that and, um, and to argue my case, and uh, I'm always pleased for the, the opportunity do to you, do that. Do you still like uh, your job? Do you still like being a firefighter? I love it. I, I, I joined the fire service when I was 22 years of age. Mm -hmm. um, I've always enjoyed it. I became active in the FBU pretty much straight away. Um, I enjoyed riding fire engines, although I'm not doing that at the moment. I've got a desk job, which is a little bit more comfortable and less dangerous. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a very rewarding occupation. You know, being in the front line, serving people uh, is, is a great thing to do. And uh, I've got no, got no intentions of leaving anytime soon. Well, uh, you are going to be putting out or starting fires all over the place with your writing and books. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Um, I should mention again, the book is out, uh, it's November 27th, is yes. that November 27th, so you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's called Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class by Paul Emery. Um, I will certainly uh, recommend it. Uh, Paul, thank you very much and uh, all the best to you. And uh, that's it for this week. So uh, we shall see you next time. And uh, please do subscribe, won't you? As I say every week. Thank you very much. Bye.